Merry Christmas. This is one of my favorite services of the year because this is one of those unusual services, a few that we have perhaps throughout the course of the year when we're all together in the same room at the same time. And I love it because um, we're all together and Christmas is a time when families come together and Calvary Christian Center, you are, you are my family. And so I enjoy sharing uh, this Christmas service with you. I'm going to go way out on a limb here this morning. Stay with me. I'm guessing that everyone here has probably heard at some point in their lifetime the Christmas story. Am I right? The story of the birth of Jesus, whether you heard it when you were a little kid or you've already heard it several times this year already or you're somewhere in between that, you know at the heart of Christmas is a story about Jesus being born as a Savior to the world, born to Mary and Joseph, and we're all familiar with what was given to us that night. And a lot like, you know, kids at Christmas time, we're thinking, what did I get? But today, I want us to focus on the giver. You see, there's something about God that you should know. He didn't have to do it. He didn't have to do any of it. Listen, no one walked into God's throne room and said, uh, yes, Almighty God, I'm your schedule coordinator, and it looks like your son's birthday is coming up, and I'd like to know, what did you have in mind? And God wasn't scrambling for ideas at the last minute, and the PR director didn't run in and say, uh, God, you let him be born in a stable? Uh, listen, your, your PR plan isn't really working out for me here. God didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to send his son to pay the price for our redemption, and he didn't have to have him come as a little baby born into poverty, lying in a feeding trough. But he did those things. Why? If God is purposeful, if he's a planner, if he has infinite choices at his disposal, why a baby? Why to a poor couple? The answers to these questions will tell us about the character of the giver, and that's who we're here to honor today. But before we dig deep, Let's just pray, shall we? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your generosity, for your consistency. We see in the world around us the effects of greed and of inconsistency and disparity and people going back on their word. And Lord, we confess that sometimes we see these things in our own hearts. Forgive us. Your generosity and love are so great it humbles us, and it transforms us, and it makes us change all of our priorities, and we're so grateful for the way that you love us. Thank you, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. All right, let's take a look at the passage this morning. It's one you're familiar with. It's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels left them and had gone into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. So what you're reading here is the first ever recorded flash mob. It is an angel flash mob. And the shepherds are, you know, they're hanging out on the hillside. They're minding their own sheep. And bam, out of nowhere come huge, glorious angels, and they sing. And I bet probably they were grooving a little bit too. I mean, you know, there's not evidence for this, but they were excited. You know, when people are excited and they're singing a good song, you move a little bit, right? I see this on Sundays here pretty regularly. And when you read this passage, you can't help but notice all of the times that the angels say, you, I bring you good news. A Savior has been born to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Four times. Remember what I said about God being purposeful? I can only imagine that when this awesome being appears out of nowhere to a bunch of, you know, outcast, poor, blue-collar workers, they're looking around like, uh, me? What? Like, isn't there like an emperor of the world you should be telling this to? Oh, wait. Okay, I get it. Your GPS broke down on the way to Herod's throne room. You know, his, his kingdom is that way, and, and Rome is that way. No, the angels had to repeat themselves four times, so these guys got it to make sure that they knew, no, 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 this is for you. And the Greek word used here is humin, and it, it's a personal possessive word. This means that you own it. It's the same word they use in the next sentence when they say, the Savior has been born to you. The message that angels deliver to the shepherds that night is the same one that they're delivering to you this morning. Christmas is for you. Jesus is yours. It's personal. The giver is personal. The gospel was never about establishing a religion. It was always and only about two people, you and Jesus. Okay, and that's the Christmas story that we're all familiar with, right? And now we're going to back up several hundred years and a few books in the Bible to Zephaniah. And I bet you'd never thought on a Christmas Sunday you'd be cracking open your Bibles to Zephaniah. It's crazy! (laughs) Now, Let me give you a short bio on who the prophet Zephaniah was, okay? Zephaniah was a young man. He was born into the priestly line, and he had also a prophetic calling. And he experienced the faithfulness of God firsthand when the Jewish people returned to their homeland after years of slavery in Babylon, He was of a faithful young generation, born into forced relocation in a culture that was far from home and far from God. And I'm sure he heard many of his people wondering often, has God forsaken us? 
Did we finally blow it with God? Are we finished? Has God given up on us? But Zephaniah saw with his own eyes, and he experienced the faithfulness of God when King Cyrus of Persia allows the Jewish people to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. And Zephaniah was given prophetic insight into who Jesus was going to be. The giver gives Zephaniah a sneak peek into the best Christmas gift on the planet. And here's what Zephaniah says about the giver. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness and with His love. He will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. And in this passage, Zephaniah uniquely captures the Christmas message of who the giver is, who God is. The giver is with you. And the first thing that Zephaniah says about God, the first way he describes the giver is he is living. And you know, we could stop right there and just praise God. You know, we're not here this morning with dusty books talking about, you know, some theological philosophy about what we think is supposed to be. No, we're talking about a living God. And he continues, he is living among you. And there's the U word again. Remember the angels on the hillside? What did they say? A Savior has been born to you. Literally, God is living among you. The prophet Isaiah said, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And at the time that the birth of Jesus takes place, it had been 400 years since anyone had heard a word from the Lord, since any prophet had been given to the people. 400 years. And you can imagine the Jews at this time are wondering what the people at the time of Zephaniah were wondering. Are we forgotten? Have we finally ticked God off enough that He wants nothing to do with us? Does He even remember what He promised to us? Look how Rome has come and occupied our country. We've blown it. Have you ever been there wondering, has God left me? Does God care? Has he finally given up on me? And that's what the people were wondering. But Zephaniah's prophetic message resonates, and the message of the Christmas angels gives that resounding answer, God has not forgotten you. God is with you, and he will keep his promise, and he has come to bring us home. A woman took her little three-year-old son to church. It was the Christmas Eve candlelight service, and it was the very first time that he was there. And he knew that back home there were a lot of presents under the Christmas tree. And so as the service was going on, he turns and he says, Mommy, when does Jesus get here? And at some point in all of our lives, I think we wonder, where are you, God? Where are you in this? And Christmas is the answer to that question. He is living among you. You see, God is not sitting up somewhere in heaven, you know, eating breakfast, looking at his iPad and sipping coffee and, you know, getting updates on on all the things that are happening down here on earth. No, no, he's here. 
He's with you. He's where you're at. And whatever it is that you're going through, he's living it right along with you. You know, the little boy in that, that joke said, what time does Jesus get here? Jesus is here. He said, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. In the season of miracles, we reflect on the greatest of them all, God humbling himself and risking it all and becoming a man just to be with us. You know, there's a lot of religions that are built on the idea of an all-powerful God, distant, unreachable, to be feared and appeased lest you be subject to his wrath. But Christianity alone reveres an all-powerful God and reveals that he loves us and he longs to be with us, who is willing to lose even his own life so that we might know forgiveness and grace and be restored to right relationship with him. God is with you. Zephaniah used the word bekirbek, meaning he's in your midst, yeah, in, in a group setting, but that word is also used in places in the Bible to suggest something within, as deep and as intimate as the thoughts in your head. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God is with us. Yes, of course, you know, we feel his presence in a special way when we come to church and we sing the songs. We sense his presence here, but God has always and only desired to be with us, not just on a special day and not just at a special time, not just when everything is going right and not just when everyone is getting along. No, Jesus looks at us and says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Through every trial, through every stage of life, he is at our side. God is with us in the good times and the bad times. Even when we feel alone or we just don't know what to do, God is with us and we don't have to be afraid. When we're about to face the battle of our lives, God is with you, whispering into your ear like he did to Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. When Kirsten and I got married, I was confident that I knew her. I had taken time to, you know, get to know her family. And when we were dating, I asked a lot of questions about her life and what her dreams were. And I listened to the stories and I laughed at the family home videos when those came out. And by the time, you know, that we met down here at the altar, I knew that I was getting the total package. Just a few more days, honey. Christmas is still coming, right? But 10 years and 10 months later, I can say I know Kirsten. The relationship is so much deeper now than it was that back then by comparison. It's almost as if I didn't know her back then. Now I can tell things about her just by looking at her. I can see you know, subtle differences in the way she's looking or some expression on her face, things that she communicates so subtly that 10 years ago, whoosh, totally missed it. It's when you live with someone that you get to know who they really are. Isn't that true? You see them in every kind of condition, various states of emotion, stress, joy, silliness, and you begin to understand 
what makes them tick and how to better communicate. And what's more, you begin to grow and you become better because now you have the benefit of another perspective on things and you can even start to see yourself through someone else's eyes. And that's the sort of relationship that Jesus wants to have with us. He wants us to be able to pick up on the still, small voice of His Spirit, to grasp the tone of His voice, the glance of His eyes. That's why He came for us, to be with us. He doesn't want to be a distant God, unreachable, worshipped but unknown. Jesus insists on staying with ordinary people. And even when we doubt His love, and when we try to break things off, Jesus is still there inviting us to re-engage in the relationship. When we come to Jesus, we leave the place that we are, and we also leave all the other possible destinations that we might have gone. We can only be in one place at one time, and Jesus invites us to be with Him, to be where He is and share in His presence, to learn from Him and to live with Him, to enjoy Him above all other things, And Jesus invites us to understand what he already knows, that there is nothing and no one else that can truly satisfy our souls. Jesus alone is our priceless treasure and deserving of our worship and our adoration. So the question isn't, is God with me? Zephaniah answered that. The Christmas angels answer that question. Yes, they said it. The question is, am I with God? Am I following Jesus or does Jesus have to occasionally come hunt me down because I've wandered somewhere in my heart or my mind? Do I live as if God resides here in this building or do I live as if God lives in my heart moment by moment? The giver is a mighty savior. After Zephaniah proclaims that God is living among us, he describes exactly who and what is living among us. He says he is a mighty savior, not just a savior, a mighty one. Zephaniah says something akin to faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Look in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane. No, it's your savior. Yes, Jesus, strange visitor from another world who came to earth with powers and abilities far beyond mortal men. Humanity is in desperate need of a hero. And like, you know, Bonnie Tyler wrote, Jesus is the hero that you've been holding out for till the end of the night. His promise is sure, his coming is soon, and he is so much larger than life. In his description, Zephaniah is saying that the God who is with us is Gibor Yausha, the strong Jesus. Yausha, it's the same root word as Yeshua, the Jewish name that the angels commanded that Jesus' earthly parents name him. It means Savior, Deliverer. Remember what I said at the beginning, God is purposeful. He's a planner. He's detail-oriented. And remember, he didn't have to do any of this stuff, but he chose to be a savior, a mighty savior. And so Zephaniah tells us Jesus came not only to live among us so that we could know who God is, but he came to 
be the sacrifice, the payment for our sins. So when we accept his sacrifice, when God looks at us, he sees us through his son. He sees us as his kids. You can't fully appreciate the Christmas story without knowing how this story eventually plays out. As a man, Jesus endures a savage beating and an agonizing crucifixion. Why? When God could have placed Jesus on the throne of the Roman Empire and the nations of the world would have been brought to his feet, he could have destroyed all of his enemies. In fact, he could have just wiped us all out and started over from scratch. But he chose to be a savior. He chooses to be your savior. It's personal. And those same strong shoulders bore the weight of all your sins and the guilt of your past that you struggle with and your regrets that weigh you down. Jesus is strong enough to carry them all. So why don't you just let him do what he came to do? He will lift all of your sins from you and free you to be the person that God intended. You see, all of us were slaves born into captivity, the captivity of our sins. And when Jesus exchanged his life in payment for our sins, the cell doors opened, they were unlocked, and the chains were broken. And the only choice really that we have right now is whether we're going to just walk right out through those open cell doors, whether we'll shake off those broken chains of guilt and regret and addiction and selfishness and just get up and start walking out with Jesus. Remember, the angels said, unto you, a Savior is born. It's personal. He's your Savior. And I love the description that Zephaniah uses here. He's a mighty Savior. It doesn't matter what you've gotten yourself into or what skeletons are hiding in your closet. If you're thinking, could God save me? The answer is yes, because he is a mighty Savior. The giver tells us not to be afraid. And Zephaniah goes on to describe the giver by saying, with his love, he will calm all your fears. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Remember the Christmas angels and the flash mob announcing the birth of Jesus? The first words out of their mouth were, don't be afraid. In fact, the first words out of their mouth almost every time they appear in the Bible are, don't be afraid. Why is that? Well, I think we can probably assume, it's safe to assume that when a, a supernatural, superhuman being shows up while you're at work going about your daily business, you're going to be afraid. But I don't think this is so much about them as it is about us. Don't be afraid. Some of you might be afraid of getting close to God because you're afraid that you'll never rise up to meet his expectations. You're afraid that God is just an all-powerful version of your own flawed father. You have wounds and you have emotional baggage and you're afraid. Some of you are following Jesus, but you're going through the battle of your life and you're afraid. Humans are fearful by nature. Remember the first one, Adam, when he hid from God at the beginning after he sinned and he said as much, I was afraid, afraid of God's perfection, afraid of his judgment, afraid of his rejection. But because of Jesus, 
the angels can say, don't be afraid. God's love for you is the authority backing up those three words. With his love, he will calm all your fears. It's not an order. Don't be afraid. The angels weren't shaking their fingers saying, look, shepherd, stop being a wuss. No. They're giving you a reason that you don't have to be afraid anymore. And love is the reason. And not just any love. Perfect love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. We have a 17-month-old son, Noah, who sometimes will cry in the middle of the night. And so one of us will go in, usually it's Kirsten. (laughs) It's got to be honest, right? (laughs) If the crying continues, if, if he doesn't put himself back to sleep and there's just something about, you know, being a parent and you walk in to the room and you see your child standing there with tears streaming down their face and their hands up and they, they just want to be held. And the moment that Noah is in my arms, the crying stops, his face plants in my neck, his body goes limp and all his fears are calmed. Peace and rest return in the loving comfort of daddy's arms. I don't storm into Noah's room and start shouting, stop being afraid, Noah, I command it. (laughs) No, I quiet his fear with my love. He knows that daddy is there. He knows daddy loves him. Fear not. That's the message that the angels bring to us. Fear not. You don't have to be afraid anymore. The angels speak with authority because backing up their words is the greatest love that the world has ever known. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. From before the creation of the world, God saw you in his heart and he loved you. And he sacrificed everything in his son in order to be with you. Jesus identifies love as the centerpiece, the key to the entire Bible. And here in the holy hush of the nativity, we see the love of God putting himself out there for us. One of two moments when God's love is most visible here in the manger, a baby helpless and as a man on the cross, helpless, vulnerable, As a grown man, Jesus said, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus speaks those words with conviction because on his birthday, at Christmas, God shows us love when we were his enemies. We remain his enemies until we repent and surrender our lives to him. And if you haven't yet done that, listen as Jesus prays for you on the cross. The giver delights in you. Zephaniah said he will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Jesus said there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One of the things that I love about Zephaniah's revelation of God is that he sings songs of joy over you. God rejoices over you. 
Remember when you were a little kid and you were looking every day at those presents just waiting there under the tree and you were just going crazy wondering what's inside? And then the time came that you could open them in the unrestrained zest which you ripped off of the paper on the squealing and the wiggling and the jumping around when you saw that it was something that you really, really loved and you had really hoped that you would get. Understand what Zephaniah is saying. Yes, this, this is God looking down on you as you simply give yourself to him. God cries out with childlike abandon and happy songs. He's jumping up and down and showing everyone, look what I got. It's what I've always wanted. It was you. You were the Christmas gift that God has been hoping to receive. God loves you. He loves all of you. And he takes delight in you. You see, he sent the angels to announce the birth of his son with singing. And they weren't just singing to God. Yes, they did that because they sang glory to God in the highest. But they also sang about you when they said, on earth, that's our home. Peace on those on whom his favor rests. And God's favor rests on you. He chose to die for you. He chose to love you. He chose to live with you. And how do you get more favor than the God of the universe choosing you? So the angels sang about you that night too. But even more than that, God sings over you. Zephaniah said he will take delight in you with gladness and he will rejoice over you with joyful songs. And I love the way the English Standard Version puts it, he will exalt over you with loud singing. Can you imagine? What is God singing over you this Christmas? I don't want a lot for Christmas. There's just one thing I need. I don't care about the presents underneath the Christmas tree. I just want you for my own. More than you could ever know. Make my wish come true. All I want for Christmas is you. 
Christmas was God's idea before time began. And he thought of it in the same moment when he thought of making you. And his heart swelled with love at the idea of your life, the sound of your laughter and the look in your eyes. God knew what the risks were. He knew that you were going to fail to trust in his love. He knew that you were going to rebel and you would fall away. And Jesus committed himself to secure your salvation, to make sure that you had a chance to be reunited with God forever, to make Christmas Day happen so that you could have hope, so that you would know how much your life is worth to God. And that's the beauty of Christmas. God knew what the price of your salvation would be. And with complete knowledge of the suffering of his own son, God gave him to us anyway. And the angels end their message with these instructions. They said, this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And they offer proof of who Jesus was by where he was staying. He was staying in a manger. And we know the story, you know, because all the inns were full. A cave where the animals were staying was the only option for Mary and Joseph. And so after Mary gave birth to Jesus, she wraps him in rags and she places him in the feeding trough for the animals. It was unsanitary. It was dirty. It smelled. It was available. And at Christmas, I realize the miracle of the manger. I'm the manger. I'm dirty. I smell. There's animals and critters inside that polite company wouldn't want to be around. I'm not the five star. I'm not the Ritz Carlton. I'm more like a, a cardboard box under a bridge, not fit to receive the Lord Jesus. But Jesus asked me years ago if he could come and live with me. So I made myself available. And here he is, God's miracle born in me. I'm not special. I'm just available. I think it would be appropriate this morning if we all stood and just gave God thanks for his generous gift this Christmas. Just open up your mouth and express your gratitude for him sending his son for you.